This episode of Rebel Talk is brought to you by Rebel Tech. Human stories for startups. Rebel Shrebel, you've talked your dress. Rebel Shrebel, your face is a mess. But our Mark, I think it explains a little bit about him. I think I would have been, uh, I'm probably quite an introvert. It, ha- it happened, yeah. it happened. And it wasn't anybody's fault. And so I grew up saying, look at me, look at me, look at me. And I think that's where that comes from. You talk your dress. Rebel Shrebel, your face is a mess. Rebel Shrebel, how could they know? Hot track, I love you so. Hello and welcome to Rebel Talk, a brand new podcast that celebrates rebels across every walk of life. Each episode, we talk to the troublemakers whose predilection for bending the rules is driving progress, change and transformation. I'm your host, Mark Schwakey, and this week we've got a very special episode, an interview with father and son, Eric and Mark Ritson. If you've spent any time around marketing in the past decade, the chances are you'll know the name Mark Ritson, marketing professor, columnist and all-round agitator. But this podcast is going to reveal a side of Mark you've truly never heard before. We'll hear from Mark's dad about the family background, the northern working class culture, and in a revelation to come, the one pivotal event in Mark's life that he says may have shaped his prickly and competitive worldview. So I invite you to sit back and enjoy as Rebel Tech presents perhaps our most revealing episode yet, Ritson and Son, The Making of a Rebel. In a column last year, you wrote, I have a wife who tells me what to do and a daughter who completely ignores me, so the chance to have anyone pay attention to me is simply too good an opportunity to pass up. (laughs) How much of your shit does that explain? (laughs) Quite a lot, Mark. I'm sure there are people that have wives and daughters that follow their instructions and go to work and get given orders. In my case, it's the other way around. I take my orders from my family. And it's nice to be able to go and write openly, and look, not, not in a totally serious way about what we should be doing rather than what we are doing which I think at the moment the gap between how we should be doing things in marketing and how we are doing them is particularly wide so I think it's a it's a rich and fertile territory to to plow one of the things I wanted to ask you Mark before we bring in your father Eric who I understand has a secret to tell (laughs) and a story to tell so we're looking forward to that but You have served for LVMH for 15-odd years as an in-house professor, but you've also done consultancy for some of the biggest brands in the world. Is this what separates you from most marketing and brand management professors around the world? Is this what gives you a little bit of a right to to espouse? We're pausing here because Mark Ritson has ordered a £350 bottle of champagne to the Hotel Intercontinental on Mayfair. Tell me, tell me what you've just ordered. Well, for many years I worked for LVMH, which is the world's biggest luxury goods company, and part of LVMH, the MH, is Moet Hennessy, and one of the many brands within Moet Hennessy is Krug, which I worked for Krug for a couple of years in Champagne, and if you... I think follow wine and champagne in relative detail and concentration, it's clear that it is the greatest wine in the world. Is it really? I think by most people's estimate, yes, it really is. There's nothing better. That's the sound of the champagne cork being popped. Tell me what I should be tasting or experiencing when I lift this. uh, This is a a bit of a drier champagne. Um, You're going to get biscuits and apples um, for sure. 
I can get those at home without paying the money. But not not Krug biscuits and apples. And you're going to get a, a perfect creation. There's a couple of years worth of grapes here. There's a little blend going on. And you're going to get, you have to see the detail of Krug. So Krug have libraries of every single, pretty much square footage of their various uh, grapes and, and vines around Champagne. And they're blending them with such certainty that when you see the process, there's a, there's a serial number on the back of this, which uh, you can't obviously see on a podcast. But if you put that into their website, it will show you the 17 or 18 plots out of about 25,000 where this particular wine came from. Amazing. That's a detail that is beyond any other champagne house. And they don't mention the serial number or the website that does it. Probably about eight people know about it, but it's there if you want to do it. And yeah. the, the detail is exceptional. We have Eric here. Can I just say cheers? It's what a pleasure to meet. What a pleasure to meet a, a, it's a, nice a, you. a dad of my old, you, of an old pal. Cheers, fam. Um, really nice to meet you. Good luck. I should say that we're talking um, about rebellion in Suite Six Hundred and Fifty of the Intercontinental. Best on, place to talk about on Park Lane. Um, apparently, Eric, Mark's father, got the better suite this time. Let's not talk about that. On the and uh, yeah. So yeah, we were talking. Does 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 your experience um, actually working in the boardrooms of some of the finest brands in the world give yes. you a different level of right to kick the the marketing industry around and, and, and espouse your beliefs? Absolutely, it does. So I think uh, I'll give you a good example. I work with a large medical company. Um, I can call. I can name them Baxter. I'm uh, in Chicago. I, I love Baxter. And one of the things I got to do in about ten years of working with them is working with what's called a KOL which is a key opinion leader. And these key opinion leaders are usually surgeons, often professors of surgery, who will promote the products of Baxter based on the fact they've used them and found them to be fantastic. And one of my jobs indirectly was working with these professors of surgery at various universities in, you know, how do we work with you to show you the new products? Um, One of the startling revelations to me was if you meet a professor of surgery who's roughly the same age and status as me, um, they were teaching and they were doing research into surgery, but they were also doing an awful lot of fucking surgery. And now I'd like to spin that around and look at British marketing professors who were doing an awful lot of research, a little bit of teaching, and absolutely no fucking marketing at all. You cannot, cannot have a professor teaching a pricing course who's never set a price in his life, and his only experience of price is when he goes into Tesco on a Saturday morning. It's a joke. If, if that professor of surgery was asked by one of the surgeons that he was training, have you actually ever done a liver section surgery? And he went, well, actually, no. I've seen it done. I've seen it done, maybe. Uh, I have some thoughts about I've it. I've published many papers. Research into how it's sort of thought about, right? It would be a joke. Why is that any different from marketing? We're a vocational subject. We need high thinking. And, and, and I'm not exaggerating. If you look across, let's take the British universities for a second. I've had a debate in a top British university in a management school uh, in Exeter. Or it might have been Bath. One of the top business schools in, in the UK about not just you know, how much experience we have in marketing. Is it really appropriate for marketing professors to work for companies uh, at the same time as teaching it? And I, my reaction to that, as you can imagine, was quite fruity. That's where we are. Now, there are some exceptions, but the vast majority, the vast majority of marketing professors in this country have never done a day's marketing in their lives. And that's a disgrace and a scandal. I'm not the rebel. I'm, I'm the one doing a bog standard thing. I'm teaching what I do and not necessarily very well. 
the real rebe rebellious people in our industry are those that have been teaching for 20 years about things that they've never done for a day. That's a rebellious thing. It's a scandal. Mark, let's get off marketing for a moment, and, and I want to bring Eric in in a minute. But when did you become a rebel? Were you always this obnoxious? Definitely not. I am, a, a, as, your, as my, your father, my father will tell you later. My father won't tell you anything. Yeah, he won't say anything. Um, I'm, uh, I'm a working class boy from a very work... I mean, you know, everyone holds up... I've got friends from Durham and friends from Glasgow who would always tell me about their working class backgrounds, and they would come to Whitehaven when I was you know, at university and visit my home area, and they would be stunned by the degree to which... We were living in a clearly more working-class part of the world than anything they'd ever seen before. West Cumbria is rough as rats, in a good way. And so when you come out of that background, you certainly don't arrive with a ready-made confidence or anything. And I think in my career, at least for the first... I mean, my career's about 25 years old now. For the first 15, almost 20 years, it was very much about, fuck, I can't even believe I'm here. Like, I'm working in Paris for Louis Vuitton. You're not going to tell anyone to do anything different. You're just going to celebrate the moment that you're in the room. The difference with me, and I, I would use Brian Clough as the example here. So I'm a huge fan of Brian Clough for many different reasons. And one of the things is when he ran Leeds United for those famous 55 days, after he lost the job, they did one of these incredible interviews in the 70s on BBC Two. And they said to him, you know, it was a huge failure for you and a massive, you know, personal uh, loss that you lost that job and he said let me stop you right there young man as he did and he said when I left they paid my salary for the five years I was on contract and I paid off my mortgage and I sorted out my kids and I had money in the bank and that's when Brian Clough became Brian Clough because he's a working class boy he's a miner's son I'm a miner's grandson for the working classes it's not about class I've got many good friends who are upper class boys and I, I love them very dearly but for working class boys once you've got your house paid off then you start going, oh, hang on a minute. I'm like the 18-year-old private school boys who just were born with that much better confidence. So I think about 10 years ago, I got close to realizing I'm going to be able to pay off my house. And then I paid off my house. And that doesn't turn you into an iconoclast or something. But what it says is, for goodness sake, life is short. You're going to be all right. Worst thing, you can walk your dogs and you know, live with relative amounts of money doing small jobs. Um, let's start telling clients that that's stupid. And also, at the same time, you pass your 40s and you start seeing the same shit again and again. And you can, you can take your money and say, you know, this is great. But in the morning when you look at yourself in the mirror, you go, you just fucking, there's no point you being here or anyone else in this meeting. What a waste of a day. So that starts kicking in as well. You, you have the, the bravery of not needing the money as a consultant. And you have the knowledge now, not the intelligence, but the knowledge to say, I've seen this before. This is how it ends. If you do this, you and I are both stupid. And it turns out good clients love it. Bad ones never hire you again. Good ones go do more of that. And that's what happened. Eric, we sat for a little while tonight in a place called Trader Vix, where I've never been, where Mark got engaged. Uh, how many years ago, Mark? I think that's a good question, Mark, and I should know the answer straight away. Okay, well, squash over that quite quickly. 15 years or 15 more. 15 years that's, or more ago. That's my ago. beloved wife. Um, <laughs> and we sat, and, and, and you, said, you said the following, Eric. You said, we couldn't be more different, me and our Mark, uh, but I'm very, very proud of him. He's now a famous, he calls himself famous, and this is a working-class lad, so he must be relatively famous to be able to accept that level of, right? He gets recognised in airports, and he gets stopped in 
Netherlands and he gets stopped in Sydney and people know him. How do you feel about? I mean, he on 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 Monday morning he sat he stood in front of seven hundred and fifty top business people and gave a lecture at the IMAX cinema, which is quite good. Well, I just what? shake my head in disbelief and say, where did he come from? Yeah, what was he like at school? He's a good little lad at school. Was he? A very good little lad. Caused nobody any trouble at all. Always had lots of friends. Put himself forward to play on the football team, take penalties, stand up and sing a solo. He's never short in coming forward. Has he got a singing voice? Yep. Yeah, he's a good little, good little singer. Back yeah. in the day, isn't he? Yeah, back in you the never, day. You never lose it, Mark. But, but Mark's my middle son. Yeah. And he had an older brother, Neil... Yeah. Who was two years older than him, and he's got a younger sister, Lynn. And I was proud of all three of them. Yeah. And, I, and so proud. B- best part of my life. And what's happened to Neil? Where's Neil? Because well, you Neil, mentioned Neil, Lynn tonight. Mark was born in 1970, in December 1970. And he had a brother two years older than him. And in, I think it was about March or April 1971, Neil was knocked down by a motor car. And he got a, uh, he landed on, he got a, a brain injury. How old was Neil? Two. Two. And he never recovered. And uh, we were out in the pram. Dad wasn't there. It, well, I wasn't there. I was at work. I worked at Sellafield at the time. Margaret, my wife, had ne- Mark in the pram, and Neil was old of the pram. And the school bus stopped on the other side of the road, and, ele- and some of the kids who knew what shouted of him. He left go of the pram and ran, and he was hit by a car and landed on his head. And he, and he, he got a brain injury he never recovered from. And so our, our Mark was, well, maybe four months old. And, and, they, and they grew up together. Now, it's not a sub story because it's, it, it was a great story, yeah. They grew, they grew up together happy, and we had another little girl afterwards. And our, but our Mark... I think it explains a little bit about him because his mum, and he had a good mum, and we needed a good mum, and she pulled us all through. Yeah. And w- w- when when Neil was first hurt, he did recover a bit, but he never got out of a wheelchair, and he never had any speech. Maybe he would have a mental age of five at the time, wouldn't he, all the way through? It was hard to say because in some not ways... Much, he, not much more. Not much more, but in some ways he had a great memory. He was still... You know, in, until he passed away, how many, three it, years ago? No, about coming up two years. Coming up two years. And Sorry, he passed away how long it, ago? Two years ago. Two, two years ago. You can't live... But, I mean, he was, in, he was nearly 50. You can't live um, <clears throat> without any... He never walked again, and he was, you know... Where did he live? With my dad. So my dad's not letting on half the story as usual. So my dad was a chemist measuring radioactivity in the Irish Sea. And then because of my, my, you see, what my brother's I, what accident, happened, he, he I, became I was, a school teacher. I was missing a lot of work. And, and when I was in my 30s, my wife, Margaret, my wife, was a teacher. And, and, and she said, well, school holidays, you know what mm. I mean? Because we're never going to part with our nail. He stopped with us all the time. And uh, I, I, went, I went to... Uh, he, he came with me for my interview. Mm. And uh, <laughs> I, I went... This was because you were working down at the plant... But you wanted to get some more time with. Well, well, it, it you, was, need, you were missing work. You see, so you needed to change absolute, career. Absolutely. You see, what what happened? They, they took him to Newcastle to deal with his brain injury, 
He's in a coma for a long time. He was in a coma for a long time. And, uh, well, it, it just wasn't working, you know what I mean? So I, I went into teaching, and, and Mark came with me for my interview. Like I'm saying to you, he was giving me advice even then. He was four-year-old. Because when I went for my interview, he said to them, uh, tell them that you're a good balloon blower up a daddy. Balloon blower up a... That's what he's good at at the time. And what, what, how old were you when you changed career? Maybe about 32. You're young. I mean, you had a good career going. There's a lot there. Let's just go through it. You've got a brother who passed yeah. away, who you grew up with, and he was incapacitated from all, the start all of yeah. his life and all of my life tell me what your relationship with Neil was like oh look it was very good but it's one of those things where you don't notice because you, mum and dad made it very normal so the effect on the link to our podcast is I think I'm not as extrovert as I would have been without my brother's accident you see I'll put in then when, when Neil was hurt and, and, and we got him back home Margaret bought, bought a, a a twin push chair, and Mark was in the chair with with our nail, and people would come up to me and say, "How's little fella going on?" You know, that's Cumbria there. How's, how's the little boy doing? How's the little boy doing? And our Mark would say, "Me, me too." See what I mean? I'm here, but nobody th- noticed quite correctly. You, you don't know because you don't you've know. got this lovely fella that's obviously very badly handicapped. I mean, he's a, lo- a lovely looking fella. And, and looked exactly like me. I mean, we were identical, pretty much. And so what happens is you... you I, I think, and we have no proof of this at all, but, yeah, that woman come from Newcastle University did a PhD on this. And I was about five. And she was doing a PhD on how kids with disabled sisters or brothers end up adopting certain personality traits. And I'm pretty certain, and I have no proof for this, I think I'm more reserved... No, I would have been more reserved. If I had a bigger brother who was two years older than me that was fine, first of all, that would be what I'd want. And second, I think it would have made me... A, I'm more of a reserved character. But from the very beginning... Sorry, you think you're more reserved because of the relationship you had with your old... Your no, old I think, naturally, if my if Neil had been unhurt in the accident, in that horrible moment, I think I would have been... Uh, I'm probably quite an introvert. And I think my... My nature is changed by the nurture of, as Dad says, growing up with a beautiful, almost identical brother who, who quite for the, all the good reasons, got all the attention because he was clearly in need of attention. And so I grew up saying, look at me, look at me, look at me, and I think that's where that comes from. And, and I read it up, actually, Dad doesn't know this. When I got to Lancaster University to do my PhD, I get access to all these academic databases well, I spent a couple of days looking up case studies on sisters and brothers of people with disabled kids. And there's a terrible story there, which is what happens is, and there's a name for the, for the, you know, the mindset, but essentially they try and make up for what's happened to the parent and also try and make up for this you know, tragic event. And so they, they're almost trying to deliver you know, two results when one would have sufficed because they're trying to say, look, it's okay, I'll make it up. And if you grow into that, which inevitably I think I did, what happens to most of these people is they break themselves because they can't do that. And in my case, for whatever reason, I was quite lucky. I got to a point where the academic achievement and all of that stuff, you know, it kind of stopped because there was nothing else to do. You know, I did a PhD when I was 23 and I went to the Ivy League schools and I was, I think a lot of it was trying to subconsciously make up for the fact that my brother, who I, I mean, think... Mark, was, if, 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 if anyone 
was to just trawl through some of your achievements on LinkedIn or, or on your CV or anything. It's very clear. I was going to ask the question, but now mm. it makes a bit more sense. Yeah. What drove that a was working it. class kid? That was it. Every single place you've studied, every single business school you've uh, hosted or, 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 or taught at, every paper you wrote was award-winning. You were the best in class. Yeah, yeah, you're, yeah. You're, you're, I think there's one business school that lists you as some award-winning professor of the year. It's like 28, 9, 10... 11, 13, 14, 15, and yeah. the question is, what the fuck happened in 2012? But now it, I went starts, to MIT for now, yeah, now it starts to make a bit more sense. It does, er, it er, does. Eric, if I could just ask you for a moment, because I've got some questions for Mark. Now he's a father. Mm. I haven't seen him since he became a father. That's right. Um, and, but as a father yourself, if, if, if I may, do you remember anything about the day that you got the call? Mm-hmm. Tell me, tell me, well, you got the call um, at work? Or? I was at work and uh, they just said, go to the phone and my wife, she'd picked Neil up on the road and gone to hospital and that night we had to go to, we had to, go to Newcastle while they operated on it to take the pressure off his brain, but the damage had been done, you see. It, the brain had swollen. And, He's only two. I mean, I, I have a two-year-old and a mm. nearly five-year-old and I... Genuinely can't imagine but, what that feels like. You, you only know when you've got. You see, I can't. I can't. I don't want to talk about that. There's, there's nothing. There's nothing. Ha- comes it happened. Them, yeah. It happened, and it wasn't anybody's fault. And my wife, my, a lot of girls would have gone to pieces, but mm. she never went to pieces. And I never heard my wife ever complain. Mm-hmm. And she was, believe you me, she was the power behind the throne. Mm. No, no mistake. And, and, and grandparents, family was everything, a normality. And me, me, me little girl, had a, we had a little girl afterwards, and everybody said, well, you don't want any more kids. And I'd have, I'd have, been, I'd have, been, I'd have been in stump without her now, mm. because she's a big elf. She helped out a lot at the time. And she helped out a lot because he was in Australia, and, and our Neil, he was ill, and his his mum was ill. They were both ill at the same time. I don't want it to be a sob story, yeah, but there was a time when I I was pushing two wheelchairs around. Mm. You know what I mean? But but I so think when Mark went to Australia, mm. I guess I guess there was something inside you that sort of did you try and persuade him not to go, or did you know well, it was inevitable after well, he met? Well, What's your wife's well, name? I, Connor. Connor. Uh, oh, I can't name. I can't say anything about Australia because mm. it, it's an affair of the heart. I've, I've, I've a good comment here, which is that Dad never said anything. My mum was a, a woman of a very similar emotional uh, constituents to myself in the sense that we are... Uh, I think we're very similar. And he's, 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 he's like his mum. Luckily, he's like his mum. Quite cold. In a nice way, we're very cold-hearted. In we, the sense we, that we're, caring, we're, but only more. Yeah, we don't get emotional very often. And the only time my mum ever got emotional in front of me in my whole life was when we were about to go. And she, you know, in the hallway, and she said, oh, I know you've got to go, but I don't want you to go. And and, and these are working-class stories. You know, they're, they're, it wasn't necessary for us to be that. I mean, you've just told me over drinks how many of your young years you spent travelling the world. Yeah. And now that takes on a slightly different complexion because you've got this brother at home who you, I'm assuming, adored. Yeah. And your parents at home looking after him. That must have been 
both a need fulfilled but also a bit of a wrench? Well, there's about three things there because, first of all, there was an assumption for a long time that I'd end up coming back and having to... You know, we, we didn't know for a long time that my brother might have outlived my parents. So you do it while you can because you might end up being anchored like my mum and dad were. And in a good way, you wouldn't have you wouldn't have begrudged it. But the first thing was... It was a nice anchorage. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't unpleasant. But that was the first thing. So you travel while you can. The bigger point was if you go home every night from, you know, when you're quite cognizant of things, 11 years onwards, and you see your brother who's pretty much the spitting image of you lying in a bed, quite happy, by the way, not unhappy, watching his soap operas, but unable to get out of the house, you're not going to stop yourself from going. Got it. And, and you, you'd meet people that would be unhappy about things or complain about things. You're, you're straight away, you're like, listen, you know, I, I've got an anchor. Every night when I go to bed, I see my brother... He's quite happy. He's not suffering or anything else. But at the same time, this is a this is a very short journey here. And he didn't want him interrupting him while he was watching Coronation Street and Emmerdale, mm. or he put his Kylie videos on. He's a happy guy. Did he, he communicate? Oh, he no, yeah. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Very yeah. Bright, oh, no, yeah. We... Did he swear like you? Well, no, he would have done. He, he, couldn't, done. he couldn't speak. It, it was like yes, no's. You know, but you he, know he, he, he was... It was a very peculiar situation because he had intelligence and very good memories. He liked Carly Minogue and Weather Girls and stuff. It wasn't a childish thing, but in other ways, it wasn't there. But that—that's that was the, anyway. So everyone's family is different. If you study any family, you'll find that they're not anyone that tells you they have a traditional upbringing is lying. Do you like being a dad, Mark? Yeah, I do. Uh, it, it, it's come relatively late in our lives. We've been married a long time. I do, and um, you've got an eighteen-month-old daughter. I do, Roxanne, and I will probably have one more Touchwood next year. And um, yeah, it's great. But uh, you know, it, one of the things that I don't know—it's the same with my dad. But I don't—I don't connect my personal life with my um, professional life at all, in the sense that I find nothing more unattractive or unappealing than people that somehow bring a story about their family. Most important thing in your life is your kids. Not your job, your kids. Thanks, Ted. There's nothing worse, though, than when you find people bringing in stories about their family into professional situations. I think it's distasteful. Not because it's not nice, but, you know, there's the whole problem I have with brand purpose is I give money to various charities that I don't need to talk about. Um, but work is a different thing. It's about making money. And I, I'm happy with that separation. And I think for me, that's been one of the big differences is I have a very nice family life. I'm not the most dominant member of my household, and I'm happy with that. It's different from work. You know what I mean? I think people that, Americans do this a lot. They blend the two things together. I think that very rarely works out well. I think I can go to work and do a job, and I can go home at night and do a very different, significantly harder job. You know what I mean? I, I like to keep them separate. And I, maybe I, I hate to make it about class. I think it's a working class thing. I don't think the two things are linked at all, other than through money. So what's, what's your relationship with this gentleman like? Oh, look, he's my, he's my biggest hero. He knows that. Eric, tell me about this lad as a kid. Tell me about Mark. I'll tell you why I went to look for him. When I was editor of Marketing Week and I went to go and get him, he was, he, he was a <laughs> columnist. A story, Mark. You he, should tell this story. He was a columnist at my competitor. And I thought, uh, I, I got a job as, a, as an editor of a magazine that, that, that to all intents and purposes, <laughs> needed some work. It needed to, a lot to, of work. To, well, look, the one thing I knew I couldn't compete with 
against my competitor was the fact that Mark Ritson had a column and uh, in, in in the in the in the rival in the rival title. And I went it wasn't to, that big back then. He was I, doing all right. I, I went, but it I wasn't went to, that big. I came it? to. I wrote him a really nice note and said, "I would love to come and meet you. When are you next in the country? I'll come and meet you at some airport, which he made me do. The bastard. That was true. Um, where did we meet? Some, Heathrow. No, we met at the we met at the Paddington. The Paddington Hilton, Hilton or something. Off the Heathrow yeah. Express. And you said I'll be having breakfast in this cafe. I thought the great Mark Ritson's having breakfast. It's going to be amazing. It wasn't that amazing. It was. It was pretty boring. Pork sausages, it was terrible. Terrible bread. Terrible rolls. And I asked him, um, I asked him to consider coming to work for me. And the first time he turned me down, and let me tell you why, and you know why. I said, um, "Look, I've been working at that time for about eight years for marketing. I'm loyal. They were paying me a certain amount of money, which was fine." And I said, "Look, first of all, I said to Mark, and it was true, you're doing an amazing job. It's brilliant what you're doing. But at the same time, I'm I am loyal, and and I, I can't leave somewhere that's made me." You know, relatively well known. I owe them, and and that wouldn't be fair. I said, right. You know that thing, that offer you made me. You never ever get me. Not because I don't want to work for you, but because you can't you can't be disloyal to those that you work for. But they've let me down really badly here. So, and I said, I made it very clear, didn't I? I said, I want the same amount of money that I'm already being paid. This is not a pay grab, and the contract is the same amount of money, and I'll never ask for a pay rise, which I've never done, by the way. Mm. Um, and I switched. And and to be honest, it was one of these examples of good luck because if I hadn't have switched, although it's fine what's happened with marketing and campaign, it would have taken me in the wrong direction. And so that's a good example of luck. I think the luck was when it, when it went to Lancaster. In what year did you go? 88. 88. He went to read English. And his mum and me thought he'd end up a, a secondary teacher. Yeah. And... Uh, I was quite happy with that. I mean, you must have been pleased being a teacher yourself that he went into that profession. No. Give a shit. But here's another... I'm I'm going to pass on that. Dad's right, though. Here's what really happened. So Lancaster's a great university. It's the oldest marketing department in the UK. And what happened was in the summer between finishing my A-levels and getting in to do English, I learned about marketing. So I was 17 and a bit. And and literally, you can see now, there's a, there's a long chain of communications with people I'm still in touch with now, retired. Stuart Riley, who's a very famous old professor there, and I realised in the summer, uh, oh my God, it's marketing, before I got there. And I peppered him with, I was going to say emails, but that wasn't possible, with phone calls saying, I'm coming to English, but you've got to get me across to marketing, because it's my future. So I was pretty much, I think, 18 years old, and I knew from the start that's what I was going to do. And, I, and, and, and that... That was def- That was set from the beginning. That was a shock, him going into marketing. Really? Do you, a- absolute you, shock. Tell me if you read all of his Marketing Week columns. Oh, I also read them. Oh, yeah, look, really, do you? Yeah. Oh, no, every, no, no, he definitely month. does. So what, what, one of the month. big... Do you, do you, do you, sorry, Mark. Do you, Eric, do you care about marketing and brand management? No. He never asked my advice. <laughs> on what did it? I mean, he just went and did things. So the back, the backstory is, I was doing English, and I went to Lancaster because it was the closest university to my hometown, literally, like a good university. And my English teacher wanted me to go to Oxford and all that nonsense, right? And I got all good A-level scores and all that. But the reality was, I, I never wanted to be... I, I don't know, I, I think there was something pulling me to Lancaster. As an 18, 19-year-old, I assumed that every marketing degree had like 25 different elective choices that you got to choose from. And it's only later on as a marketing professor you walk around and realise, oh, no, most marketing degrees have like three choices. 
So I grew up in a warm, supportive, incredibly marketing-rich environment from the start. I can't tell you looking back that they all knew everything about it. But there was a commitment to marketing, which was very rare in the 1980s. Very rare. I hope you're enjoying this episode of Rebel Talk. For more details on today's show and to listen to previous interviews, visit rebeltechpr.com slash rebeltalk. Tonight I'm going to be singing about the NHS at a gay club to the tune of Don't You Want Me by the Human League. That's not rebellious, that's just weird. Many Rizepi's in your restaurant. And I was like, oh. I said, I've, I've just ordered a Domino's. <laughs> and then I would have to battle it out on the corners with the souvlaki guy and the orange juice guy and the king custard guy and the fruit and nuts lady. You learn a lot working on the streets of New York. You can also subscribe to access exclusive behind-the-scenes content. If you do, we'll make some. And learn more about our cohort of rebel guests. That's rebeltechpr.com forward slash rebel talk. For content we haven't invented yet. Hot trap, I love you so. Your dad tells me earlier you were cracking at telling stories and writing stories. Yeah. Is it something you knew you wanted to do to go into education? And then did you even think for a moment you might be no, some look, famous professor in boardrooms? And I think the story of, of my, you know, whatever is actually the story of the other boys I went to school with because they were some of them were smarter and more creative than me, but they ended up going and working in a factory or a nuclear reprocessing plant when they were 16, and they're working there still 30 years later, and they have no idea how good they were. I was very bright and creative, but there were other boys as good as me, but they never got out because they left school because they thought that was the greatest thing in the world to do. And so I think what happened to me was I got out... Uh, to Lancaster, which got me to America when I was 19. And and I think, you know, if we're talking about rebelliousness, my first year at university was, I was extremely overawed by university. I came from a small, very industrial part of the world. Every You know, this was very intimidating. And I use that word with, with absolute deliberation. I met Americans and stuff. It was like, whoa. And... Then I went to America for the summer and hung out with Americans. And I came back a different person because I was like, right, fuck it. You know, I've seen a little bit of things now. I am not going to fuck around anymore. You start to see the same shit again and again as you work in companies, which you have to... So first of all, you have to learn about marketing. Then you have to work for companies. And then you have to see the same shit happening in companies. And then you have to say, right, I can keep earning. I mean, I get paid. Like, Let's be completely honest. Like, What's the point of not being honest? I get paid $12,500 a day. I do 200 days consulting a year. I make an extraordinarily large amount of money. And I was making that large amount of money a long time ago. And I would make the same amount of money because I sell out every year. My capacity is full. I would make the same amount of money if I went and said, that's great, you keep going there, that's good. I endorse that, keep going. I could have done that. It's just that it's not fair and it's not good work to do that. And I think that's a, a very important part of the story of you know, want to talk about rebelliousness. It's telling clients and companies that you respect and people you respect, for goodness sake, this is nonsense. Think about this for a minute. And it's too easy to draw their attention to this and they go, oh, you're absolutely right. When you talk about brand management and everything else can go hang itself from mm. brand purpose to mm. to all of this stuff, it's about, it's about making money. Yeah. It, this sounds... And you, you often talk about marketers kind of being apologists. You do seem very money-driven. Definitely. Isn't so that, is, is everything about the profit? In a, in a publicly listed company, it definitely is. I've yeah. killed more brands than anyone else I know, and I've done it 
with an absolute and utter cold face. Listen, we came to make money. We didn't come to do anything else. If you like art, do poetry in your private life. We came to make money. Mm. No one that has me will ever let me go for one simple reason. I make them enormous amounts of fucking money. I earn a bit of money. I make them tremendous amounts. Talk to my clients. I've made them hundreds of millions of pounds. That's my fucking business card. I'm a money-making fucking motherfucker. And that's what marketing was always meant to be. Purpose can go fuck itself unless it makes money. I believe in, in animal rights. I believe in gay rights. I believe in protecting the earth. But I go to work and I'm making money for companies. There's nothing shameful about satisfying customers, making beautiful products and services, and making a very good quarterly profit. I, I'm proud of that. I'm not ashamed of it. And I'm sick to my back teeth of marketers that are somehow trying to be rock stars, trying to be artists, and trying to save the world. Do that with your fucking weekends. Go to work and make money. And that makes me sound like a dinosaur, but you know what? Plenty of people want to hire a fucking dinosaur right now. Did you enjoy school? No, it was the most abysmal experience of my life. I went to a secondary school which all the teachers were wonderful, even when they were hopeless. Uh, Whitehaven Comprehensive School. Uh, the kids there were uh, a mixture of, you know, beautiful, brilliant kids and psychopaths. And it was the worst experience of my whole life. I went to the headmaster of the school when I was 14, and I pointed out that we were coming downstairs, and a, and a selection of the kids from school were waiting at the bottom of the stairs and were punching every boy that came down the stairs in the face. And he said to me, well, you're a big lad. You sort it out. And even then at 14, I was like, that doesn't seem right to me. I, I also spent my entire uh, school career in, With your head in, down. in comprehensive schools, most of them boys' schools. So uh, avoiding a kicking was a daily experience. And, uh, you know what I'm talking and about. When and when I went to, um, to look at schools for my boy, they're different places now. I'd literally stand in the playground and go... So where's all the casual violence? You know, where are the cycle? Yeah. Look, I'm I'm the world's most anti-private uh, school person in the world. I think everyone deserves the same education. Having said that, many of my best mates went to private school, and they're beautiful people. I'm jealous of their life because they had ten years of a lovely, supportive experience with non-psychopathic people. Twelve and a half thousand pound a day, though. I'm sending my kid to private school. I hate private school. I'm opposed to everything about it. I'll never put my kids through that shit. What? Do you want for your daughter now? Like what? What, what oh, do you hope? That, what do you hope for your daughter? Dead simple happiness. She can be a hairdresser downtown in Hobart, Tasmania. I don't care about that shit. I ha- I work with a lot of professors. They got these kids where they're like, you know, they're grooming them for wonderfulness and all that. It's bullshit, man. If my daughter is, if Roxy is like, you know, a hairdresser in Huonville and she's enjoying cutting hair, it'll be great. Mm. Well, it's true. That's the word to talk, it? It's true. If you're enjoying today's show, why not help us spread the rebellion? Rate us, leave a review, and tell a friend. friend I love you so. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Mark Ritson with the 60 Second Rebellion. These are quick-fire questions just oh, to finish yeah, we've off. Oh, yeah, we've got to do this. Yeah, yeah, okay. Advice to your 16-year-old self. It'll all work out in the end. I'm a big fan of Mark Kermode. The 16-year-old Mark Ritson's advice to the grown-up you. Oh, that's, that's very hard. Um, get laid more. Fair enough. It's the same for all of us. The most important single character trait for any marketer? Uh, Empathy. 
You're given the power and money to solve one big global problem and one tiny, annoying, day-to-day, small, first-world problem. What big and small problem do you solve? Our big problem is uh, animal welfare, um, particularly dogs. Um, I, I would ban all breeding of dogs, make everyone get a welfare dog. Small problem would be uh, universal Wi-Fi. Have you got dogs? Yeah, I've rescued dogs. I have, uh, I have two very nice dogs. I've got a giant dingo Labrador cross called Asia. comes from the Risdon Vale Dogs Home. He really loves those dogs, boy. <laughs> Does he? I do. I, when when my, my daughter was born, I kept telling people I would not love my daughter more than my dogs. And people said, oh, you just don't understand what it's like to have a baby. And I said, no, you don't understand what it's like to have good dogs. And I love them all equally. They're, there's no difference yeah. between any of them. And, uh, yeah, no, I've rescued dogs, which I love very much. And finally, what, what are you most excited about? Uh, going home. Uh, I love being in England again. It's been awesome to see my dad and stuff. But I'm a Tasmanian now, and I want to go home. I would like to thank two very special guests, uh, Mark Ritson and the great phenomenal fit because i saw him climbing over a bed to get to the toilet before (laughs) because i couldn't move in front of the microphone so we just we were the two fattest guys in the room he hopped 78 yeah the seven the the 78 year olds the one that's hopping skipping and jumping over the bed (laughs) guys thank you for your time it's been a pleasure to spend an evening with the ritzens (laughs) post-match analysis uh nicole lyons mark schwakey and just us actually when we originally spoke about mark ritson as a rebel you think of him swearing um in front of lots of people um contradicting marketers and people left right and center so that was for me he's he's a rebel um but actually the real rebel in him comes from the turning something tragic into the drive that's made him who he is today that's the rebel bit and he doesn't think that's the rebel bit we were in this weird bar before we spoke, him, me and his dad. Um, and his dad kept saying, I've got something to tell you, son, that's going to knock your socks off. And he kept turning to Mark and saying, can I tell him now? Can I tell him now? And Mark kept saying, just, dad, just wait for the interview. Mark Mark knows what he's doing. Just wait for him to ask you the question. Eric's a legend. What He's absolute gentleman and a really tough guy actually amazing amazing guy and he kept telling me this isn't a sob story this is you know we've we've done what we've done another thing that hit me in this is you've got someone who can actually two people eric and mark who can you know come from working class eric working class backgrounds they've always grafted um and they're able to sit there and analyze themselves they're actually able to there's a even though both even though mark says he's quite cold um and eric's kind of very matter of fact they're both able to sit back and admit openly how they felt watching both of them together was brilliant because it's funny because they're both the same guy uh, and they both come from the same world and yet mark's ordering this ridiculous i mean it was wonderful champagne but when you should see Eric's face when a three hundred and fifty pound bottle of champagne comes to the door, he's like, "Ah, oh, he's like, yeah, I'll drink it." But I'm not, you know. When we were in the bar earlier, Mark was ordering these incredible drinks that came in skull crafted glasses and uh, had things hanging out of them and smoke coming off them. And Eric was like, "Can I have a beer?" That's all for this episode of Rebel Talk. I'm your host, Mark Schwakey. Thanks so much for joining us. 
My thanks also to our brilliant production team at Hard Six Audio, to Spiritland and King's Cross for the beautiful studio, and to my Rebel Tech co-host Nicole Lyons and producer Meg Wright. Until next time, up the Rebels. Rebels, rebel, your face is a mess. Rebels, rebel, how could they know? Hot track, I love you so. Carlisle, according to Lonely Planet, mm. is not Britain's prettiest city, but it has a history and heritage Listen, of plenty. Uh, we've got nothing to do with Carlisle. Right, let's fuck Carlisle. He's, he's from up, West Cumberland, he's from Whitehaven. Grow up, growing up in West Haven. Whitehaven. Growing up in Whitehaven. <laughs> Pleasure. 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 We're calling this one the making of a rebel. Uh, Eric and Mark Ritz. Never, been, Thanks, a, Mark, never no. been a rebel. Uh, it'll all be all right in the end. I follow the commodian man. Oh, Dad, what are you doing? Do that again. <laughs> <laughs> Eric's playing with the iPad. Let's do we have to again.